well, I must really be settling into my pastoral role because last night I had a dream that I haven't had since being a pastor, which is where I'm supposed to preach a sermon at a church and I'm running late and can't get my stuff together. And I indeed missed the service that I was supposed to preach at. So I haven't had that dream for several years, but last night I had it and was so relieved when I woke up this morning and realized I hadn't missed church. So I'm glad to be here in many ways. Um, Those of you who know me well know that I am very happy uh, to be living in Houghton. I still say I'm living in my new home in Houghton. Um, it's, I've been here for three years, uh, but it's, it feels new to me still. I really like living here. I like this little place. I like this town. I like Western New York. Um, it seems to me to be a, a good place to set down roots, a good place to raise children. And one of the reasons for that, which I think is underrated, is the beautiful summers that we have. And I have just thoroughly enjoyed summer this year. My friends from back in Pennsylvania... And southern New Jersey can't believe it when I tell them that we have only a window air conditioner in our house, only one up in the bedroom, and we've only had to turn it on once this whole year. They can't believe it. Um, but it, to me, it's just, it's been so gorgeous, and we, I feel right at home in part because of the weather. When it was 68 degrees yesterday, I was just so happy, and when I turned on the weather.com and looked at my weather back in New Jersey, it was 91 and steamy. I was just glad to be right here. So I really, I like it here. And I feel an allegiance to Western New York that people feel towards their homes. Does that make sense? I just, I'm beginning to feel like it's home. Now, that being said, I wanted to uh, prop you up like that. I wanted to puff you up because I need to share a bit of devastating news. There is one crucial way in which my allegiance is still divided. And that is my undying love for Philadelphia professional sports. I grew up loving Sixers basketball, and those of you who follow the NBA know that the Sixers made a big trade this week, and I'm all excited about it. I love Flyers hockey, Phillies baseball, and Eagles football. Not in that order, but I love them all. They're like my four children, I suppose, in the sense I can't choose one that's my favorite. Whatever the case, I can't give them up, and I'm very defensive about it. Actually, I say I can't give them up. I'm not sure if it's can't or won't give them up, but I'm not giving them up. Got it? Now, the Phillies have been kind of the crown jewel recently. For five years in a row, they've won their division. But this year, they're terrible. And it's causing me no lack of sleepless nights. But because of that, I've started to pay attention to Eagles training camp earlier than in previous years. Because the Phillies have been so good, I haven't paid attention to football till September or October, but now I'm paying attention to football in July because baseball is so bad. So I've been back at home reading on the internet about how the Eagles training camp is going, how the different battles and the different positions for starters are going, and and how our quarterback looks better this year. Uh, Michael Vick, our quarterback, is looking great, and I'm pretty excited about it. And, And I found myself, as I'm reading, I'm getting more and more excited about Eagles football. And I found myself asking, you know, could this be our year? Every football fan is allowed to ask that in July or August, I guess. But, you know, could this be our year? Could this be the year that the Eagles actually have a really good team? They might contend for the Super Could we win the Super Bowl this year? Maybe I say football fans everywhere get to ask that question in August. I'm not sure Bills fans get to ask that, actually. But whatever. We'll, but. <laughs> So I was asking these questions, and then, out of nowhere, something shocking and tragic happened. Garrett Reed is the oldest son of our 
head coach, Andy Reid, who's the coach of the Eagles. He's 29 years old, been in and out of trouble, drug addiction, that sort of thing. He had been to jail about five years ago. And then he had kind of gotten his life back together, it seemed, was working for the team. They were up at Lehigh University for training camp. And he was discovered dead in the dorm room where he was staying. Perhaps from an overdose, no one really knows. No one knows exactly what happened. Um, In the statement the family released, they said something about how he had lost a battle he had been fighting, and it just sounded like he perhaps had had uh, returned to drugs and something had gone very wrong. When that happened, it made me realize that I had been thinking the wrong thoughts about my football team, and I had been asking the wrong questions about them. I had been asking myself if they could go to the Super Bowl, when in actuality the most important questions for them this year is, is coach and our coach's family going to be okay? How are they going to deal with this tragedy that's in front of them? Jesus has a way of looking at you and me and making us realize that we are asking the wrong questions. And this happens sometimes when I pray, when I have this kind of whole list of things that I want God to do, and he sort of laughs, and then he does what he he thinks would be best, and that blows me away, and I'm very glad in the end that he didn't do everything on my list that I had assigned for him to do. And, And a similar thing to this happens in this story where a man has one question on his mind. It seems to him to be the most important question. It's been the guiding focus of his life. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus, being a good Jew, points him back to the book and he says, well, well, take a look at the law. What what do you see there? You tell me, what do you see in the book? And the man is sharp. Uh, Sometimes we let ourselves sort of caricature these characters in the Bible, but this man's sharp. He, He is a lawyer, so he spent his life in the text parsing its details, but he doesn't say, well, I think I've got to do a lot of good stuff. No, he says, well, I think what it boils down to is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what I think it says. And Jesus says, good job. Thumbs up. Do this and you will live. But then we get to what I think is the most interesting phrase in the story. The the, the story says, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. Now, there are a couple ways of reading that phrase. One is the way we most commonly use it. You know, he wanted to look good. He wanted to justify himself means he wanted to look good. He wanted to prove to Jesus that he was already doing a good job. And he wanted Jesus to tell him that he was already doing a good job. And he preferably wanted Jesus to tell him he was doing a good job in front of everyone else. Right? So that everyone would know that he was one of the good guys. So that's one sense in which we might say he wanted to justify himself. But, but a somewhat different meaning, and I think it's important, is the theological idea of justification. He wanted to justify himself. What the man is asking, how do I become saved, what do I need to do, that's a question about justification. How am I justified? What makes me right with God? How am I saved? And Jesus' response, of course, is, well, like you said, sir, it's mostly a matter of love. You know, love God, love your neighbor, God takes care of it. The man 
is dissatisfied with this answer. He does not like it one bit. And we, we might wonder why. I mean, it seems like, seems like it's good news, really, that it's actually fairly easy to be saved in a sense. It's a matter of love. It's a matter of disposition of the heart. Uh, and I think, though, while it seems easy, I understand why the man was a little bit dissatisfied. It's because the news was too good. I mean, love God, love your neighbor, anyone can do it. And that's both the good news and the problem as far as the man is concerned. This man was an expert in the law. He could parse the texts. He knew what it meant inside and out. He could tell you right from wrong on the most minute points. And he was an expert on these things. And despite his expertise, he was still a good person. He was a good lawyer. And deep inside, he knew that it wasn't these minute points that saved him. That it was the love of God. But somewhere deep, deeper down, I think he kind of hoped that his hard work to understand the text, to understand God, might make him just a little writer with God than everybody else. He wanted his work to count for something, and he wanted God to be just a little bit impressed with the work that he had done. He wanted to justify himself in every sense of the word. He wanted Jesus to commend him out loud, but he also wanted to make himself right with God because that made him feel more special somehow. So from this web of mixed motives, this desire to justify himself, arises this question, who is my neighbor? That's a a logical enough question, right? I mean, it seems to flow pretty well in the story. The man says, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus says, well, what do you read? Love God, love your neighbor. It seems logical then that the man would say, well, who's my neighbor? But because we know about the man's motives, we know that the question is not innocent. But it's actually just a variation on the question that I've been posing as we've been talking these last few weeks. Who is in and who is out? Who do I have a responsibility to love? Who do I have a responsibility to care for? Is it my family? Is that where the line is? Is it my friends? Is it my physical neighbors? And of course, the converse to that question is, Jesus, please tell me who I'm free not to love? Who am I free to ignore? Who can I safely put away, pretend they're not there, and generally bear no responsibility on that last great day for? That is the wrong question. It's the wrong question to ask anybody. It's especially the wrong question to ask Jesus. And just like Garrett Reed, that that coach's son, just like his death jarred me back to reality and made me ask different questions, Jesus jars the man out of his spiritual slumber in the same kind of way. Who's my neighbor, says the man. And Jesus says, there was a man who was going down a dangerous road. He was robbed, stripped, beaten, left for dead. Whoa. And I can just picture the man thinking, this is not the kind of answer I was expecting. Right? Who's my neighbor? Well, let me tell you about a guy who got beaten, robbed, stripped, and left half for dead. At that point, the man must have been feeling two things. Whoa, (laughs) I'm in trouble. Maybe I shouldn't have asked that question in the first place. The second thing is he might be feeling just a tad annoyed. A man who has spent his life in the books, parsing the minutest detail, and now he's getting this syrupy sort of heart-tugging story about who his neighbor is. He didn't need that kind of thing. Jesus and he could talk as, as peers. He didn't need Jesus to share that story. 
But what Jesus here is doing is something vitally important. He's pointing out this idea that if your whole life is about justifying yourself, about making yourself right with God, you become blind to desperate suffering. The very fact that this man could ask, who am I free to not love? Is evidence that he has not actually loved a person in a very long time. It's evidence that when he's encountered a person who is suffering, he hasn't thought about anything except for, do I have a responsibility to that person in a very long time? Because of that, he hasn't actually been able to give himself in love to that person. When Jesus starts off the story with the robbing and the beating and the stripping and the leaving for dead, it's not just because he knows how to spin a good yarn. He's doing it because this graphic and brutal story will wake the man up from his slumber. Just like the death of Garrett Reed made me say, hey, you know what? Football players, they're not just robots for my entertainment. They're people. I didn't think about that. I didn't realize that. You know, not just disposable entertainers, but people with real lives. I mean, I realized that, but this woke me up in a new way. I realized I had been asking the wrong questions. And in the same way, Jesus says, there's a man suffering, bleeding, dying in front of you. There's a dead 29-year-old man. This is not about me. This is not about me and my neurotic suffering and my questions about whether or not I'll get saved or not. This is about the person who's suffering. Now, Jesus goes from this point in the story and he talks about different ways to respond to suffering and they, they kind of highlight the points they've made. A priest walks down the road and he sees the man who's suffering and the first thing he does is to avert his gaze, pretend he has not seen him, and pass by on the other side of the road. And a Levite comes along and he does the same thing. These two people we might say, in terms of what I've been saying, intentionally blind themselves to the suffering of another person. Why? Because the fact that person is suffering is inconvenient for them in that moment. They see a suffering person and immediately think about themselves and their responsibility in the situation. But a Samaritan sees him and doesn't look away. He looks squarely at him. And the text says at different points, he takes pity on him. Jesus commends him for having mercy on him. And he puts that pity, that mercy, that love into action and dresses and bandages the wounds and pays for the man's medical care. Now, let me just back out of the story for a second and say this parable has always bothered me because this parable literally happens in my life a lot. Right? There are just countless times when suffering stares me square in the face and actually many, many times it's when I'm on the road. If I see somebody by the side of the road with a flat tire... I think to myself, especially when I was a pastor, I used to think this, great, now what am I supposed to do? Right? I'd be dry, I had a 20 minute drive from my home to the church where I pastored. And if I, and this happened, of course, I passed a person stranded by the side of the road. I'd think, well, what do I do now? Am I the priest? Am I the leave? Should I just go to church and leave the guy there? Do I stop and help him and do whatever he needs? Do I, do I do that and then show up half an hour late to church? Will the pastoral relations committee really believe me that I was helping a guy by the side of the road instead of just sleeping in? What do I do? This happens to me all the time. Or or it happens now if I'm going home from something and I'm supposed to meet Jill and the kids at a certain time so she can teach a class. And I pass someone literally on the road and I think, should I stop and help this person or not? There's someone counting on me. 
And this is a tough parable because just like I've mentioned before in the sermon series, there's so much suffering in the world that we don't know how we can possibly be a good Samaritan to everybody. In fact, we can't, I think, in the terms that we most understand this story. But I I think, though, maybe a ray of hope here, I think that this parable is not necessarily about a prescription about what you're supposed to do in any given situation where you see somebody suffer. And I say that not just to let myself off the hook, but because look at the reason the man came to Jesus in the first place. What do I have to do to be saved? Would you list the requirements for me? Jesus' response, as I've said, is to say, that's a worthless question. He said it nicer than that, but that's a worthless question. That's not the question you need to be asking. It seems unlikely then to me that he would say, and here's a Samaritan, and as long as you do what he did, you'll be fine. Here's the real minimum you need to do to justify yourself. That seems unlikely to me that Jesus would say that. It seems unlikely that Jesus is laying out a prescription for justifying yourself when the whole point is about how you can't justify yourself. The point of the parable, at least as I see it, is not that the good Samaritan is off the hook because he did enough. The point of the, good, the parable is that the good Samaritan was good because he wasn't concerned whether he was off the hook or on the hook in the first place. The parable, to me anyway, and this may be controversial, I don't know, but it's about how the Good Samaritan saw the beaten man more than the precise way that he cared for him. And think about this. Couldn't the Good Samaritan even have done more? Couldn't he have been the better Samaritan, the best Samaritan, right? Why didn't he leave the man more money to get back on his feet once he left the inn? Why didn't he go fetch the best doctor in Samaria and say, you got to come with me. There's this guy I saw beaten and bloodied by the side of the road and you can take care of him. Why didn't he offer the man job training? Why didn't he go and advocate for better club control laws and better police enforcement on that dangerous road so that there wouldn't be these problems in the first place? That's what the best Samaritan would have done, right? But... The point, of course, is not that he did exactly what was right. The point is he looked at a man and saw a suffering man and not merely an obstacle or ally to his own salvation. Only the good Samaritan saw the suffering man and said, this is not about me anymore. This is about him. And so in my life, this parable is not necessarily what I do every time when I see a person with a flat tire, but it's whether I pretend to see him or not, or pretend to look away, pretend he's not there or not. Am I willing to see a man suffering or not? This whole sermon series I've been working on is is about this kind of thing. We've been talking about how easy it is to put people in boxes, to dismiss them as people, to dehumanize them. And, And whether or not the people in our lives are right or wrong, it's not like Jesus to take away their humanity. It's not like Jesus to pretend they're less than they are. Jesus always sees potential in people that they don't see in themselves. He always sees more in them. He doesn't just see a bloody person in the middle of the road and say, I got to go somewhere else because I got important things to take care of. He sees a person there who can be helped and who can come to partner with him in the end in the bringing in of the kingdom. That's why the Levite and the priest fail. They look at the man and they see only an obstacle to their own life and salvation. So what do we learn from this story? 
about how to, to treat other people well, how to avoid putting them in boxes. Well, I, I think the main thing we learn here is that we need to open our eyes to human suffering. So often we're like, I, I'll, maybe I'll just speak for me. So often I am like the priest and the Levite, not because I'm selfish, but because I'm afraid to acknowledge human suffering. There is so much suffering in the world. So much. And as I think I've said before, because of the communication technology in the world that we live in, we are so much more aware of so much more suffering than people my parents' age, grandparents' age, than that generation ever was. Places in the world my grandfather would have never even heard of. I'm now aware of what's going on there and the struggle that is happening there and the way that people are being abused and and things there. It's too much for me. It's too much for most of us. And so what we do is we sort of arbitrarily draw a line in our lives and say, you know what, now I just got to shut it out. I can't think about it anymore. I can't look at it. For me to sleep well at night, sometimes it demands that I pretend that human suffering does not dominate the world in the way that it actually does. Now, I'm not called on to address every problem. I'm not called on to heal everybody. Jesus didn't heal everybody. Who knows but what the good Samaritan was helping the guy to the inn when someone came along and needed his help and he couldn't help him because he's already helping someone else. Right? We can't take care of everyone. And, but if we're going to be like Jesus, we can't pretend that they're not real to help us make sense of our lives. The vast majority of suffering people in the world we can't help. And we're going to feel helpless when we look at them. But that's okay. <laughs> we are helpless. God's not. Right? So we need to not pretend that they're not suffering. In the story of the Samaritan, of course, it was the willingness of the Samaritan to see the other person as a person that moved Jesus to say, you were asking the wrong question. Let me tell you the question to ask. Here's the question to ask. Not who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor to others? Now, again, I'll say something. It might be a little controversial. I don't know. And if you don't agree with me, that's okay. But I actually think that if the priest and the Levite had stopped and said, you know what? Let me pray. I can't do much for you right now. I will stay with you and I will pray until someone else comes to help. I think God would have said, that's a good guy in the story. Because I think a priest and any given Samaritan would deal with the problem differently. Why do I think that? Because you and I each have a unique response to human suffering. The way that you are called on to deal with a specific problem is not the way that I'm called on to deal with it. So you are going to deal differently with the problems that we see in Allegheny County or Ethiopia or India or Mississippi. You're going to deal with them differently than I deal with them. You're going to feel drawn to certain problems and I'm going to feel drawn to other ones. And you're going to have different ways of dealing with the problems that you're drawn to. And I'm going to have different ways of dealing with the problems that I'm drawn to. And that's okay. That's part of how God made us. What's important is we don't close our eyes and pretend that suffering is not happening there. When we start to ask the question, not am I responsible, but how can I be a neighbor right now? That's how we know that we're asking the right question, that we're on the right road. Now, that is an easy sermon to preach. That is a really, really hard thing to do in real life. I'm going to give you two examples One is comical, one is not at all comical. 
And I suppose I should leave you laughing, but I have to start with the comical one because it just makes more sense. The comical one is this. Jill and I are married. Well, not that that's not comical in and of itself. But Jill and I, of course, we have different ways of dealing with problems and issues in our own lives. Some of those ways, we are stereotypically masculine and feminine. And in some ways, we're different. Right? In our house, Jill is the mathematician, which means she's kind of the number cruncher analytical one. And I'm kind of the, let's take the emotional temperature of the room one. Right? And so sometimes we subvert those stereotypes. But in some ways, we are stereotypically masculine and feminine. And one of those ways is when Jill has a problem, I want to solve it. Right? There's a problem on the table, and so there's something to be done to get that problem off the table so that we can proceed with life. Right? Men? Right? Yes. Okay. That's the way, stereotypically, men will think about these things. There are differences, but that's... Jill does not want me to solve the problem, but... Talk about it. Listen to her, right? Deal, like, just, just be present with her in the midst of suffering. And I think, why? We wouldn't have to suffer if we solved the problem, right? <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the discussion we have in our house all the time. So, <laughs> anyway, um, we have this discussion. What I've come to realize is that 90% of the, not all the time, but 90% of the time, the reason it's important for me to solve her problems is because I don't deal well with the times when she has a problem. When she's not happy, because I'm the kind of emotional temperature in the room guy, I'm not happy. If there's anything wrong with her, I want to know about it because I want to make it right. Because I'm happier when she's happy. What does that mean? When Jill's suffering, I want to solve her problem. I want to be the good Samaritan. I want to jump in and do something. When in reality, I'm just making it about me. I want to solve it for my sake. So I can go on with my day in the way that I choose. Do you see how one can be so much like the Good Samaritan and yet so selfish all at once? To look at that situation and say, I will solve it, I will help, when that's not what the person who's suffering needs or wants. The point of this parable is that I'm not doing the right thing there. No matter how noble my motives, if I'm not focused on the person who's suffering, I'm making it about me. I'm turning, actually, I'm turning a blind eye like a priest or a Levite to how they feel in their situation. So that's one thing, and I suspect it happens to all of us. Something that might not happen to all of you happened to me last night. I, um, for eight years of my life, between my senior year of high school and my last year of seminary, I worked as a YMCA day camp counselor. That's what I did during my summers. I liked day camp as a life, and I wanted to work with a group I felt comfortable with. I didn't, at that point in my life, it wasn't important that it be a particularly explicitly Christian group, but it was a place that I could sort of meet kids where they were. And the first seven years of that were in a little town in New Jersey that I like to call kind of a micro-urban context. It was a little town, just one square mile, one mile on each side, eight liquor stores or bars in town. And it was, and I don't just say that to shock you Wesleyans, I just mean to say, this was a town that had real problems. It was a town where it was exceedingly impoverished. Anybody with any wealth got out of there as quickly as it could and went to surrounding townships or whatever, but they just got out. And I felt like this is a place where I can be with these kids. So I spent seven summers of my life doing that, a lot of hours, just hanging out with kids. I'd you know, stay for day camp, and then I'd stay after and play basketball with them and get to know them a little bit. I don't you know, I didn't have any great sort of come to Jesus moments. I'm not a star of any after school special or anything like that. But it was a time in my life when I felt, yeah, I was very proud of that time. I'm glad with what I did during those years. 
So it came as a huge shock last night when one of the kids, who's now a 25-year-old man, was shot and killed. And he was murdered in, our, in that town, uh, which is not unheard of in that town. It's less common than in some bigger cities, but it's, it's, it's not unheard of. And he's been, this kid had been in and out of trouble with the law uh, for a lot of years. And uh, it was a very, just a shocking thing to hear. I have to confess that the first feeling I felt was, how dare he? Right? How dare he? I poured seven summers of my life into you, kid. You know? And there were people around you. I don't know what your parents were like. I'm not getting into that. But there were people around you who I know loved you, cared about you, wanted something different for you. And yet you pushed them away. And I was angry at him. You know why I was angry at him? Because deep down inside, I was feeling guilty about me. Perhaps there was something else that I could have done in that situation. Maybe I could have reached out to him a little more. Maybe I could have taken him out for lunch one day. Or maybe I could have told him about Jesus or connected him to a church. Or maybe there was something I could have done. And I realized that, whatever, half an hour after I heard about this kid being murdered, I was laying on the couch feeling sorry for myself. I had somehow succeeded in taking the murder of a 25-year-old black man in New Jersey and making it about me. That's what this parable is talking about. There is suffering going on in that family's life right now, and I frankly don't know what I'm called on to do to address that suffering. But if I can't deal with their suffering for a little bit, if I have to tell them, look, you could have done so many other things, I'm so mad at you and I'm so mad at your son. If I have to tell them that or if I have to justify myself... In the middle of this, I'm no better than the man who came to Jesus in the first place. If I can't be open to what God would have me do or what God might be doing in the midst of that suffering, instead of trying to write my own life story and being frustrated at the inconvenience that this young man's murder puts into my own perception of myself and my life story. That's what this parable is about. When you see suffering, don't make it about you. Allow another person to suffer And be present with them in the way that God has called you to do it. Whether it's as a priest, whether it's as a Samaritan, whatever it's like, be with them and allow them to suffer without right making it about you. So, in closing, I want to ask you to do three things. First, be mindful. I've tried hard to make myself look back when I turn away. Does that make sense? There are times in my life where I want to close myself off to human suffering. And now I'm to the point because I'm training myself to look back that I know when I'm looking away. So what I'm asking you is be mindful of those times that you look away from human suffering. Just be aware. Whether you succeed or whether you fail, just be aware of the times you're turning away. Two, be open to interruption. So I was walking with a friend the other day, and he reminded me of this quote that was an old Notre Dame professor talking to Henry Nowen. You know, my whole life I've been complaining that my work was constantly being interrupted till I discovered my interruptions were my work. If we really believe in the stuff that I've been saying, that God makes you and I capable of reflecting his presence to each other, then that's just not limited to the people in our lives who are convenient to us at any given moment. 
that's also a reality that's available to the people who interrupt our lives. Yet, we routinely roll our eyes and get frustrated when anyone interrupts us. So here's my question, right? How, do we be able, how can we be able to expect to know what to do for the man who's bleeding in the middle of the road if we treat our spouses, our kids, our colleagues, our friends as interruptions? If we see them as obstacles to doing what God wants us to do, how do we expect to see strangers any differently? So I'm not telling you to go know automatically what you're supposed to do for the guy with a flat tire, but certainly you can figure out with your friends and your spouses how to not treat them as interruptions to your real life. How to not blind yourself to their suffering and their ideas. Three, and this is really a challenge. I want you to think about one person in your life who you know is suffering that you just can't bring yourself to face it. I had this when I had a friend who got cancer and he and I had not been in touch for a while, maybe a year or two. And then I heard he got cancer and I thought, you know what? I don't have to renew this friendship with this person. Does that make sense? I had kind of gone on with my life and he had gone on with his life. And then hearing he had cancer, it was just way more convenient not to let him back into my life, not to reconnect with him, not not to open up my life to him again. But yet I felt like, you know, he's suffering. I need to open myself to him. So there could be a situation like that in your life where it's just more convenient that a suffering person stay out. And I want to ask you to let them back in. Just one person. I won't tell you to do that with everybody. Although heaven knows what would happen if we did that, right? But one person. Think about that one person who is suffering. It could, bring, it could be a, a person who's sick, like I say. It could be a person who's struggling in their marriage. It could be a child you know who's having a hard time in school. It could be a parent of young kids who is exhausted, like you know, me. It could be a, per, a parent of older kids who's disappointed. Whatever it is, if there's one person that you can open yourself to again and make a choice to reach out to them and be with them in their suffering, to give a call, to renew a relationship, to make a few minutes to make an hour, to make a day just about that person and their suffering. If you do that, you'll likely discover a few things. You'll be, discover you're glad that you renewed your relationship. You'll be amazed at what God is doing in the midst of their suffering already. And you might just find out that by giving yourself to them, you receive more than you gave to them. Let's pray together. God, we live in a suffering world. And I know that many of these folks out here know that better than me. God, so often we struggle with why things are not as they should be. And God, when we encounter the suffering of another, it's all we can do to manage our own suffering sometimes, and it's so tempting to turn away, so tempting to not let them have a foothold in our lives. God, we know that we cannot do what the Good Samaritan did for each and every person who's suffering. But we pray that you'll help us not to be priests and Levites, people who turn away because it's simply inconvenient to us that another person is suffering. Make us open, willing, and available to do what you would have us to do, each of us uniquely, in their lives. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.